0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Okay, so I want to admit right at the top that today we're going to have a conversation on Political Rewind that, yes, might get a little scary, for some of you out there because we're going to talk about really difficult subjects. And uh, we're doing that with a person who has spent the last seven years of her career doing just that, talking about death, sex, money, which is, of course, the name of Anna Sale's incredibly popular podcast, uh, and other subjects which so many of us work so hard to avoid. She has a brand new book, Uh, which is in many ways a distillation of the conversations and what she herself has learned partly through living her own life and then listening to other people talk about these tough subjects. The book is called Let's Talk About Hard Things, and it looks at death, sex, money, and then she adds family and identity. I had just a wonderful time reading your book, Anna Sale, and I'm just really thrilled you're here with us today. Welcome to Political Rewind.
1: Thank you, Bill. I'm so glad to be here with you.
0: You, from the very start, you tell us, I grew up with a certain faith I could find the right words to navigate whatever life threw at me. And then you were hit in the face with the fact (laughs) that age 30, you were in a relationship that you knew was going to end in divorce. And suddenly... You say it was. I, I I tried to Google what it meant. You know that I've a divorce. Yeah. Google doesn't have many answers. T- talk a little bit about uh, that experience and how it led you to want to explore th- uh, subjects that we often can't find words for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I want to say like, what what a what a lucky life I had that I was thirty before I got hit in the face with something that I couldn't navigate around. But um, for me. The experience felt like, you know, I I grew up in a family where I had a lot of older sisters. Uh, We went to church growing up. I was always like a student of kind of even music lyrics and poems and books just about how to live, always kind of collecting wisdom. And and then I was a journalist. So I I just developed this real kind of like bedrock faith that whatever came to me, came, came at me, I could just put my head down, study and try to learn how to fix whatever was hard. Um, and then I was 30. I was married to my first husband, and we were doing that. We were going to couples counseling. We were reading the books. We were digging in. And I couldn't figure out how to say the words that would make what was hard in our marriage um, fixed. And what I found was, oh, the, these hard conversations that we're having were we're getting somewhere because we're realizing that we had some really fundamental, um, differences in what we wanted in life. Um, you know, whether to have kids, where we want to live, to live, how we wanted to live and we couldn't agree. And the hard conversations were exposing that they weren't fixing that. And, and it really led me to, um, as I came out of that marriage and divorced, what I found was, oh, why, why am I like only focusing on um, sort of life hacks and trying to find ways around what's hard? Maybe there's a lot more wisdom in sitting with people and asking them to tell me what happened when you had a life moment like that, when what you thought was going to be the thing that was happening did not happen. And you had to rebuild, you had to heal, you had to make your way. and. And I found those conversations so comforting. Um, And it was interesting. It felt almost paradoxical because they weren't telling me, here's the way you're going to prevent yourself from getting hurt again, Anna. It was, here's how we can share together about what life throws at you. And you're not the only Mm -hmm. one.
0: So um, seven years ago, you launched Death, Sex and Money, which First of all, one of the best titles ever for a podcast. Second of all, <laughs> Thank you. one of those inspired ideas that many of us would say, oh, my God, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what, what do you think, what prepared you for being able to turn to celebrities, non-celebrities and others to be able to have these difficult conversations mm-hmm. about subjects that we're going to talk about as we go through this show? Well...
1: You know, I like I I want to talk to you about this bill cuz I think it's something you probably deeply understand. You know, I before I launched the show with with my team at WNYC, I covered politics. And what I mostly did when campaign season came around, the kind of reporting I did was going out and finding people in shopping centers and cafes and bowling alleys and wherever Um, and just did that thing where you said, how are are things going for you? How do you think the country's going? And what's happening in your life? And, you know, I had that realization that like, oh, when you just ask someone to pause and see if they have some time and you say, I want to listen to what's going on in your life, they will tell you. And when you're covering politics, you hear a lot of personal stuff. You hear about, oh, you know, I, Uh, my, my kids are now heading to college and we're having trouble. And my husband and I are both working full time and I don't understand why we can't make it work. My parents could make it work with one parent working just these really deep questions about, um, how the systems we live in in America are working or not. And and when you um, develop that muscle of running up to people when they're going about their day and saying, hey, can I just talk to you into a microphone? You know, will you just tell your story into a microphone really fast? For, um, it, it gives you that skill of just, you learn that like, I just, I want to tell you why I want to hear your story. I'm going to ask follow-up questions. I'm going to listen. And they share
0: the drinking game that we could have throughout this show would be built around the word listen. And in fact, it occurred to me as I read your book, every chapter of every subject you cover, when it comes right down to it, there are many ways in which this book could just as easily have been titled Listening by Anna Sale, Mm -hmm. because that's the key Mm -hmm. to virtually everything you talk about.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that sounds so simple. And then when you really think about how that happens in hard conversations in each of our lives. It's so hard because really, I think the, um, the really essential skill in listening, especially when it's around something where there's disagreement or conflict or difference is the question, like, can I hear what this person is telling me, even when it conflicts with my own point of view, can we exchange the, you know the the deepest sense of how we think. You know what whatever our own personal analyses are, and can we make room for both? Um, and I think that is the uh, the real trick to any hard conversation is is how you um, take care of the relationship while you're talking. So you're talking about a hard thing, and then you also have to indicate through talking, even though it's listening, that you are hearing what the other person is saying.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And that's going to come up as we talk about it, march through some of these subjects over and over again. So if if we may, I'd like to talk about maybe the hardest one of all right away, and that's death. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've we've been exposed to more deaths in the last year and plus, year and months, number of months uh, in our country, and it's been just a, a horrible thing to watch unfold as COVID-19 has taken so many victims. Um, but your uh, section on death takes us back. Some of the book is really a memoir, of course, and you go back to the time when you confronted death for the first time, when your Uncle Bailey, at a wed- at a wedding um, in North Carolina, uh, uh, suddenly died. Talk. Tell us a little about that.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks for asking about my Uncle Bailey. Um, my Uncle Bailey was my grandpa's brother, and he also was my grandma's sister's husband, so two siblings' married each other and they lived across a cow pasture from each other and the two brothers farmed together. So this was a very close family. Um, And it was actually at my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. So just imagine every relative in, in that local community in North Carolina was in that room where they were celebrating. And my uncle Bailey had been having some heart trouble. um, And we knew he was going in for a, you know, a, a doctor's appointment the next week um but during the reception uh i i looked up i was a teenager at the time and right in front of the table of of desserts um i saw him grab the corner of the table and collapse and then it was quiet other than the sound of my mom and dad and my aunt delivering cpr and someone else calling 911 and um it was you know stunning to me to be able to look around and see my uncle Bailey's children were in the room. My uncle Bailey's brother was in the room, you know, every family is just witnessing this and we're waiting for the EMTs to show up and, and they do show up and uncle Bailey, um, was wheeled off into the ambulance and we later found out that he had died and, uh, it felt so sudden and shocking. And then the other experience that has really stayed with me about that was, um, there were so many very clear rituals about how this community came together, uh, and, and celebrated a life, uh, after a death. And three days later, the whole, those same people who were at the party were in the chapel at the funeral home and the same kind of dessert table was set up, you know, and we remembered and celebrated uncle Bailey's life. Um, and, you know, I later found out that uh, before he'd gone to the anniversary party, he had delivered a calf that morning. He had his coveralls in the washer. You know, this was a, yeah. a um, and, and so it, it was it was profoundly shocking and also somehow um, taught me a lot about just when you have those rituals, it does not make the death less sad. He, is, he was still gone, but um, everyone kind of knew what to do. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that as I was writing the book because I realized, oh, I don't live in a community like that. I don't know what to do. Um, so many deaths that I have heard about uh, recently in the last year and a half, I found out first on social media. I have mostly been physically separate from, from the people who are who are most close to the person who died. And so instead of being able to like make a casserole and bring it by, you know, like my grandma showed me how to do, I had to figure out how to use words. And that's a lot tougher um, because the first instinct that one usually has is when you're trying to figure out the words to say, either on a phone call or on a Facebook wall, like so many weird ways.
0: We've just Mm -hmm. lost, um, there you come, you're back.
1: Oh, am I back? Okay. You you want to... say the thing that is going to, um, make the person who is grieving feel better. And you can't, you know, um, you can't fix that loss, but what you can do is, um, just say, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Here's what I remember about this person. And then listen to see what they're feeling and, and, validate the whatever feelings they're going through instead of trying to rush through to, um, you know, uh, you'll get through this, you'll, you know, these sort of, um, uh, things that we say that, that often skip over the loss because it's too scary and hard to look at.
0: Um, you quote, um, Megan Devine, who has a website called, uh, refuge in grief. And she says, some things cannot be fixed. They can only be carried um so i want to i'll share with you a quick personal example of that um my father died uh, it's been a long time now he died in the mid-90s and at the time i i spent an awful lot of my time here he's up in chicago and i was covering uh the governor of georgia at the time zell miller pretty extensively because he'd become a figure in national politics Zell could be an exasperating, thorny character. He was from the North Georgia mountains. He had a spiky personality. We occasionally clashed, as all reporters did with him. But in the midst of uh, being in Chicago preparing for my father's funeral, uh, Zell called me. And we, we didn't talk for long. But at the, the last thing he said, and there are words I will never forget, is, Bill... I love you. Oh, and to me, that was such a <laughs> profound statement from someone who made himself vulnerable in the moment. Never, never tried to, couldn't fix it. But it was a, it was an extraordinary moment, and I, 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 would, I think you would understand why that could, would be such a powerful moment.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love that memory. And, and I think what it speaks to is, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like all of us are figuring out how to talk about loss with one another. And we're kind of re reuniting, even if we were, some of us were working, you know, in our workplaces, uh, as essential workers all this time, we've, you know, we haven't been gathering socially as much. So how do you, how do you begin to acknowledge that loss? And, and I think that, um, Bill, I love you, is that's he took that step of saying, I'm gonna like go out on a limb here outside of the usual way that we communicate. And I'm gonna indicate that something big, I'm recognizing that something big is happening and you are going through something big. And um what a gracious, what an what a what a like extension of grace I feel. And and that's I yeah. think what um when you can think about. How, when do I bring up a hard thing? Is this small talk or what do I do? It's sort of in those little moments where you say, I'm just going to open this door and I'm going to say, I see you. I see what's going on, you know, and, and it, and it hits. It's so loving.
0: Um, you, you make another point uh, about how we deal with death right now that I, I was so on board with um, mm. why have we, why have we stopped talking about the fact that people die now we mm-hmm. talk about them passing away, passing over, transitioning. Now I appreciate that some of those words are relate to religious understandings of death. Nevertheless, those words have creeped into uh, into the to our culture on the news. For example, we, so and so passed away at age sixty-seven. And it feels to me like it's an avoidance of dealing with the reality. Sorry, they were here yesterday; they're gone today. And as you say in the book, death is overwhelming, but it's not complicated. Someone was here; now they're gone. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I like you. I said, you know, I understand why we move. You choose different words when we're talking about death. Um, sometimes it's, uh, you know, even to just try to be. Um, Light, or also respect the dignity of of the person who's gone. You know, so we 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 look for these words, um, and and I think it's if if that's your religious tradition or that's the way that you I like I I understand all of those impulses, but I also wanted to point out here's what's lost when you use euphemisms. Um, you like you say you sort of gloss over the real reality of death. Death is an ending. Um, it, it is an ending of, of one sort, even if you believe in, in, um, an afterlife, it is a change. It is an ending. And also it can obscure some really fundamental, um, facts about how our society is working. Um, one of the people I talked to in the chapter on death is Alicia Garza, who, uh, coined mm-hmm. the term black lives matter. She's an activist based in Oakland. And, and her point is, you know, I, I really think we need to say when we're talking about death, um, how someone died Uh, you know she talks about in the context of um, police violence like she uses the verb murdered Um, she talks about people in her community in Oakland dying because of neglect Um, I think you know I have thought about this a lot with the uh, overdose tragedy that's ravaged my home state of West Virginia and and noticed the ways you know sometimes obituaries will acknowledge um, that someone died after a battle with addiction, and sometimes they say uh, died at home. And, um, you know, when I'm trying to understand why one of my friends from high school is gone, um, it's important to me to know this is what was going on in their life, and and um, this is what's going on uh, with drug addiction in West Virginia. So I, I think that when you gloss over how someone died and that someone is dead, uh, you're right, like you, you're... There is a, you're you're trying to pretend that things that are happening
0: haven't happened. Um, before we move on from, from death, um, it, it helped our, our listeners understand a little bit more about this notion of how we talk to other people when they've lost someone, when someone they love has died. And, and, and I think the example of it that's so pertinent in your book is uh, the woman you talk to, who acknowledged to a friend that she had no idea what words to use and said that i don't know the words how about if i
1: text yeah. you
0: and just yeah. ask you talk about that
1: yeah i this is megan divine who you mentioned who who has uh the website mm-hmm. refuge in grief and and she, her personal experience with loss was uh she lost her partner suddenly in a drowning accident when he was 39 it was a you know very sudden loss, a shocking loss. And she described it as, you know, um, you're having this experience of every day, it takes 99% of your energy to just wrap your head around this new reality. And then you have 1% energy to take in or to just have these social interactions. And then they often take a lot of energy. She she said, you know, so often I would find myself in the position of, of Feeling like I needed to comfort the person who was comforting me to show to show them that what they said was helping me, um, which is a is a lot when you're deep in grief, and and then but she told me about this this uh, conversation she had with a friend who's who said to her, I don't know what to say, um, and I also respect that you uh, are grieving and in your own way, but I quite frankly I'm worried about you, and when I don't hear from you I worry, so. How about if I just text you? And if you don't feel like talking, if you could just text back an asterisk and just show me you're there. Um, and it became this way for her friend to check in without requiring extra work from Megan. Um, Megan could say, I'm, I'm doing my thing over here. I just need quiet. Um, I don't want to talk. Asterisk, you know. And, and, and her friend, I just love that. They're just saying, I'm really at a loss. I love you and I want to figure out how to best show up for you and take care of you. But I don't know what to say. And then they just talked about that and developed this system.
0: It was a wonderful story um, and seems so powerful for people who are listening to think about as as they try to come to terms with what you say to to someone in these moments. Um, The other side of that is uh, watching how people come to terms with the fact they're going to die themselves. Uh, You tell a powerful story about um, your dear friend, Ann Simpson, wife of uh, Senator Alan Simpson, who was instrumental in bringing you and your husband, Arthur, (laughs) uh, together, which in and of itself is a great story. But you got to know Ann Simpson when she was already in her 80s. She was suffering with cancer, and you had long conversations with her in which she talked to you about what it meant to think about dying
1: yeah um i she we became friends when she was 82 she's now 89 um and she actually thought she had cancer and it turned out not to be cancer but there was a period where she thought here it is here's my end and um as her friend you know i i'm i'm much younger than in my 80s i was in my 30s at the time and and i found myself having that feeling of like I need to talk to her because every time we spend time together, I come home and I'm, I kind of am hit with this wall of anxiety of like, I don't want to lose her. She's so special to me. I I, I just, there's something I need to do because I so don't want to lose her. So I said to her, and can I talk to you about um, your illness? And can I talk to you about, about death and interview you? And we sat down in her house at her kitchen table and had lemonade and I asked her about what it was like to to face her own decline and 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 the knowingness that her death was coming, and you know, it was one of those conversations where just kind of saying like, "What's it been like for you? What is this like?" And and I, you know, maybe this is obvious to a lot of people, but for someone in in my thirties, I was kind of like kind of liked hearing that for her it still felt totally foreign this idea of aging and death you know like she was trying to get more you know aware of it but but like oh my gosh now I'm one of those old people um and and it was a real um what I what I thought about a lot while talking to her was how do I um have you know talk with her where I'm you know being open with my curiosity while also not making her feel like, you know, disrespected or, or I make forcing her to talk about something in, in a way that's going to make her feel uncomfortable. So it was a real practice. And um, just kind of saying like, what, what's open questions again? What's, what's it been like for you? What have you noticed? And we talked about what she thinks about um, what she'll miss when she's gone. We talked about um, a book that she read called Intimate Death or that was written by a French hospice worker and how much comfort it gave her when she was sick this idea of, of what death can be. It doesn't have to be scary. Um, and then at the end of the conversation, I told her, I said, you know, part of why I wanted to talk with you is because I just, I, the idea of you not being here is so sad to me because you are so important to me and I love you so much. And she just nodded. (laughs) She nodded in her way, her proud way. And that was it, you know, like She's not not gonna die like that conversation did not fix that, but I know that we have said she knows how I feel about her, and I have listened to what she wanted to share um so so that is a some comfort um but I I still am really looking forward to having dinner with her again pretty soon.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. All right, so you're still pretty young uh, and, and you are going are, we hope. Have have many, many years ahead of you. But how do those conversations with Ann, Sim- Ann Simpson um shape how you think about death and dying yourself?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's made me the thing that I think so much about with her, you know, the, when she got emotional, the most emotional she got was about um not being able to see her grandkids um, mm-hmm. you know, uh become adults, you know or or how long into adulthood she would be able to, to be with them. And that's what I think about now. I have two little kids. Um, that's the part that's just heartbreaking about death is just not being able to be with them anymore. Um, yeah. So when you have that awareness that there is, um, that's not going to last forever. I, I try to stay uh in the moment, even when I have a two-year-old throwing a tantrum or a four-year-old who's, you know, not listening to just be like, <laughs> I love being with you too. <laughs> you <know? laughs>
0: this is a you special know, it, moment. <laughs> so before we got to get to a break, but before I do, it strikes me that it is one thing, at least this is my experience. It is one thing to lie awake, wake up in the middle of the night and suddenly think about, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, and go down that rabbit hole where you're really obsessing about the fact that it's really going to happen. I'm not sure I think that it's healthy to do that, particularly for me. On the other hand, I'm 74 years old. I had a heart procedure last week. I had two stents put in last week, and suddenly my mortality feels much more real. And so what I do think is important is that in calm, loving, and practical ways, I can talk to my wife, who's like 16 years younger than I am, my grown children, about the fact that someday we're not going to be together anymore. And to me, those conversations there's a certain graciousness around those conversations, even though my kids especially when they hold close, hold their fingers in their ears.
1: Yeah, I mean, I get that. I get so hard. That's how I felt with Ann Simpson. That's how I feel with my own parents. Like, don't make me face this. Um, but also when you push through that and say, like, you know what is it like to be? You know, my my dad is in his eighties. What's it like? You know, what? How do you? What are you thinking about? Like your priorities right now, and and those conversations, like to know that you're having them and have had them when you don't have the opportunity anymore. Like that's that's why you got to push yourself to pull your fingers out of your ears.
0: I I think that's exactly right, Anna Sale. Um, we're going to continue talking. I really want to talk to you about. Your uh, section on sex, which is just as much about <laughs> relationships, and I found it really resonant for me in my life. The book is Let's Talk About Hard Things. Our guest is the host of the podcast De- Death, Sex, and Money. Anna Sale will be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm talking with Anna Sale, host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money. About her book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, which is a distillation of things she's learned and listened to as people talk about those very difficult subjects. Anna, if you will indulge me for just one moment, I do want to wish a happy birthday to our senior producer, Amelia Brock. It's a big day for Amelia, who I have to to (laughs) tell you, is wise beyond her years, has a wicked sense of humor, still spins records on vinyl. She can tell you about the latest trap music group, but can also point you to a Thelonious Monk record you really need to add to your collection. And since she's joined Political Rewind, she's been wonderful in helping us expand the uh, variety of people who have been panelists on this show. So thank you, Anna, for letting me wish Amelia Brock a very happy birthday. Of course, I
1: join you in that. (laughs) Yay, Amelia.
0: (laughs) Um, So let's talk about the second section of your book, sex. Um, You say a fascinating thing. You say sex is one of the most potent ways we communicate with one another. It's a wordless communication, but managing its power requires words. And a good part of what you discuss with us is um, how couples learn to be willing to say things to each other like what do you like what don't you like what would you like me to do what would you and i have to acknowledge that as i read that i thought i'm awkward about those kinds of (laughs) questions too
1: (laughs) i know um it's because a lot of us are, and Bill, I want to say, like I, I to all you listeners out there who heard Bill's forward promote before the break about sex coming up. I'm sure there's some sitting in their driveways because that's like one of the best forward promotes in all of public radio history. Um, uh, I I think we all feel awkward around um, conversations about sex, and and not just the physical act, as you say. I write about it as you know, it includes. Um, the 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 idea of of romantic relationships because any time you are talking about um, sex what what is hard is there's at, it, you 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 are having to figure out hmm how do I indicate to this other person what I want and need whether it's physical emotional etc and I need to figure out how to listen to what they want and need and there's always that risk at the middle where those two meet that they're not going to match up. You know, Um, the person might not want to go home with you from the bar or, you know, your long-term partner might not think that there's a problem in how you're relating intimately. Um, And, and so that's what is hard because those conversations take saying, here's what I'm noticing. Here's what I'd like, you know, and, and, you know, there's all kinds of shame around even figuring out if you're allowed to say what would, um, feel good, for example. Um, but, but you, when you talk about that, what you're doing is you are taking care of that relationship because what is a romantic relationship other than that exchange of like, here's what I want and need. What do you want and need? And how do we make that work together?
0: There's an old cliche that I think has some applicability here. Um, uh, good sex does not necessarily make for a good relationship, but bad sex almost certainly <laughs> will cause real problems in a relationship.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think that that's like, um, you know, it. it I, I think that's a really, I'm going to tease that out a little bit, which is to say, like, you know, um, I write in the chapter about, uh, you know, in any relationship there is um, – change, right? Because sex also is about our bodies. It's about our stress levels, like, you know, how we're feeling emotionally, whether we're ill or not. And so even when you think, oh, I talked about this with my partner when we were getting together 15 years ago, we've worked it out. Like, actually, no, you do have to do that check-in of just like, what's going on with you? What's going on with you? Um, Because change is a part of all of our relationships and and bad sex as you say that's what happens when there's like a mismatch and a not listening um and uh and so that's i wanted to create a number of sort of uh models in that chapter of just you know these 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 conversations aren't complicated because it's just about they're short sentences you know um how you feel, you know, does that feel good? You know, what do you what are you up for? You know, just kind of and it can be playful and flirtatious. It doesn't have to be, you know, clinical and weird and unromantic. Um, but just opening the possibility for those conversations um really does can go a long way to make bad sex good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. But but I also think that the first part of that cliche is really important to think about, that good sex doesn't make for a good relationship. And the reason it doesn't is because, and it's why relationships are as much a part of this section of the book as talk about sex itself, is because if you haven't figured out how to communicate in broader ways, how to talk to one another, how to listen to one another then you can even put aside all these questions about what do I want, what don't I want, because as you point out, it's the relationship and how you communicate in so many ways that matters.
1: Yeah. And really this gets down to trust, you know, because this is sharing yourself with someone is, is vulnerable. And I I do think I've been really heartened by the way public conversation we've been having about what is, um, what is the appropriate way to talk about consent and sex that, that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, affirmative consent say, you know, not just saying, do you want to go home? But like, is this okay? Is this okay? And even doing it in a sexy way, like that's a really good model, um, that people who have again, been together for a really long time can use too. Um, because it is that, um, tending to the relationship, um, while you are, uh, figuring out your physical intimacy
0: um soon after your uh, divorce you uh had met arthur Mm -hmm. and he wanted you to go with him to a wedding and Uh both of you understood that that might be a very vulnerable place for you to be and i'd love for you to talk about that just a little bit but i'd also like to talk about something the minister i think it was at that wedding said that you felt was important enough to uh put into the book um, and he talked about love and marriage in a different way than we're used to thinking about it. Uh, what wh- what was that? Tell us all what the he said,
1: yeah. Arthur was um one of the first people I spent time with after my divorce. And one of our first dates was a wedding. I'm not sure I would recommend it. <laughs> it's pretty intense <laughs> um, and And the moment I remember that was the most intense for me is, um, you know, I was sitting watching. These two people up at the altar. And the minister said at one point, um, you know, people think love makes a marriage. In fact, marriage makes love. And the, the message of his, of his sermon was so much around, um, what you are committing to building together when you are choosing Mm -hmm. to marry. Um, and there's a lot in that, that I really believe I, I, you know, that's why I got married the first time because I believed uh, in building something with someone. Um, but man, as a newly divorced person sitting in a chair, listening to that, it hit. Um, and Arthur, uh, noticed. And, um, as we were, as the ceremony ended and we were walking away with all of the guests, he kind of gave me one of those, you okay? Kind of looks. And I was like, Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, and then he looked again, you know, a little deeper and, more eye contact and could see that I was, you know, a little watery at the corners of my eyes. And he said, um, why don't you just walk over there? It was an outdoor wedding, walk off the path, just go sit in in those trees. I'll go to the Mm -hmm. truck and you meet me there. Um, which, Oh my goodness. Like how he knew to do that. I, it's why I love him. Um, and, and I sat on a log in my dress shoes and I just cried and um it's sort of one of those cries that felt like like i was throwing up like i just needed to get it out you know and i composed myself and i walked back to the truck slowly and then i saw that he had uh while i was crying in the woods um he had gathered together some wildflowers and put them on the passenger seat of the truck like just really (laughs) sweet really sweet and um You know, it's, it made me, I told that story because there's a lot in there. There's that he, um, you know, so much about relationships is figuring out how to let your partner be going through whatever they're going through, um, without always making it about what it means for you, you know, and Arthur gave me the space to just, he realized there was some, there was some grief I was going through, um from the end of my marriage and that that it was okay that I could be a little messy. Um and and the other thing that that made me think about was like, oh, I I really feel um what does it mean that I feel like I agree with that minister but I'm also a divorced person? Like and and just really confronting my own feelings of failure and shame um and uh it's something, you know, I'm I married Arthur Spoiler <laughs> yeah. to make the, I married him after, after a lot of, you know, sort of figuring out our way forward and, and me pushing through a lot of fear and me having a, a long period where I was saying like, I don't know what I can do right now. I'm I'm still working through this. And he, he was okay with that. Um, but, but certainly I think the thing that I think about how I, how I think about marriage making love, I think, yes, it does. Marriage does make love. And also Um, sometimes marriages don't last forever.
0: Yeah. Um, here, everybody, you all hear these threads that kind of run together in here. It's again, Arthur was, would certainly have been willing to sit and listen, not to try to, Mm -hmm. to, to heal you with his words. He lets you have the space you needed. It goes back to talking about death and how we respond to people who are in mourning. Um, I I do want to say, I've got to get to our final break of the show, but I have to tell you, Anna, when I read that sentence to my wife, uh, you know, love doesn't make marriage, marriage makes uh, love... uh, Janice just lit up. She said, oh my God, that is so true. I mean, we've been together now 28 years, and I think we love each other far more today <laughs> than we did back then. And a lot of that has to do with what we go through, as you know, in learning how yeah. to talk with one another, respect and care for uh, one another. And sale. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. <laughs> Death, Sex, and Money podcast host uh, Anna Sale with us to talk about her book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. Anna, all right, death and sex are hard enough to talk about, but money, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know. My, my wife and I have a, a, a team of fina- a couple of financial planners who have worked with us for a long time. They work for one of the most respected money management firms in the country. They have become close friends over the years. They've advised us. It doesn't matter that twice a year that we go in to talk to them about our finances, we both feel it's like visiting the dentist for a root canal. <laughs> money, strangely enough, can in some ways be the most complicated issue of all the things in your book.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I was writing, I was like, where do I start and end? And everything is about money. And also there's other things that are important. It was very tricky because I think that one of the things that makes talking about money so hard is, um, we're talking about so many things at once when we're talking about money and often we don't, um, Think, analyze what are all the layers of the conversation. There's a great quote that I learned from um, a financial therapist named Amanda Clayman. She's someone who her, her work, she's an actual therapist, and she just talks to people about money. She's not a financial advisor. She talks to people about their emotions and feelings around money. And she says, Money is both a symbol and a tool, which is yes, obviously, but also, oh, when we're arguing in my marriage with Arthur about, like, should we spend this money on X, it's not about, you know, just the money and the, like, personal finance piece of it. It's, you know, I'm bringing my, all of my beliefs that I came up with in my family about what's an appropriate way to spend money and how much we ought to be saving and, and how how much we share with others versus how much we try to build up uh, stability for our own kids. Those are really big questions with um, a lot of cultural differences among Americans. And mm-hmm. I had, I, I realized um, through talking about money a lot with Arthur, like, Oh, this is something that's part of my personality. And I can think about it's, it's not gospel. You know, I can think about, is there another way I want to think about money? um, that would be more like less. Um, I, 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 myself am quite cheap. That is my, uh, <laughs> my disposition towards money. So I don't <laughs> want to spend ever. I just clamp down and I have to talk about what is that anxiety about? Um, and so when we're talking about money, we're talking about so, so many things at once.
0: Well, uh, it, instead of saying you're cheap, Maybe we should put you in one of the categories that you write, The financial psychologist Brad Klons describes, you're about vigilance. You're very yes. careful about making sure that you're not overspending. He says, vigilance, money worship, avoidance, let's not talk about it at all. Why do we have to see the financial planners twice a year? And then status. I thought those four uh, categories alone were really illuminating.
1: Yeah, and I thought vigilance... It- I thought the same thing. Well, that sounds really good. If I was going to be one of those four, (laughs) I wouldn't be vigilant. But um, I think that the downside of money vigilance is the way it operates for me is I have this idea of if I focus on the numbers enough and obsess about them, somehow I feel like I'm keeping myself safe. Um, I'm, I'm, again, back to what we talked about at the start of the hour, this idea of if I, it's going to protect me from the unknown. And of course, the thing with money is like, yes, you can prepare. And also, all of our financial lives are a combination of forces we can control and forces that are out of our control. Sometimes we're really lucky with the family we were born into or the economy we graduated school into. And sometimes a pandemic hits and wipes out your business. And it was not something that you yourself could have controlled but so often, because the way we talk about money in our culture focuses so much around personal agency and personal choices, and uh, it, it can be when you have something that's not going well in your financial life, shame stops us from having the conversations that could actually help us, you know, figure out how to get out of
0: it. Um, throughout uh, uh, the section on, on money, I thought about, I went back and thought about a quote that actually appears in the family section of your book, but that, again, is a theme that I think ties together so many elements of what you talk about. Your conversation with Hassan Minaj. He told -hmm. you that his dad said to him, do you want to be right or do you want to be together? Do you want to listen and resolve conflict or to stand firm in your convictions and your truth? And, And I think that applies certainly to sex, to money, to family and to identity, the other things you write. That is so crucial to all of this. How do we learn to have productive, respectful conversations in which the the point is not to win, but to hear the other person and find a way to come together?
1: You know, I think about, I love that quote, do you want to be right or do you want to be together? Um, Because again, it's about that's what a hard conversation will help you figure out. You know, sometimes it is it is appropriate that you say actually I don't agree. I'm not mm-hmm. going to be in coalition with you on this if it's a political thing or I I I'm not going to go along with this. I have it's it's uh antithetical to my principles and I I say no. Um but sometimes you can have a hard conversation and you realize, "Oh, here's I you see it differently than I do." I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to hear why. And I'm going to think, okay, that's not a deal breaker for me. It's actually more important that we focus on the things that bring us together. And that can be true in a spousal argument around money and figuring out which which compromises you're willing to make. It can be about how to get along around the Thanksgiving table with your family. It can be at the highest levels of, of, uh, you know, figuring out political coalitions and how to live in a democracy
0: and, and one of the best stories I think you tell about just that concept is about Pam and her stepfather uh and if it's the only place in the book where we suddenly learn get get into a Donald Trump kind of uh, conversation despite the fact so much of the book is about now um Pam couldn't stand her stepfather among other reasons, because he was a big Donald Trump, she <laughs> Fox News was out in the house 24 hours a day, but they managed to overcome that over many years. You write,
1: yeah, it was it was slow and incremental, but the first thing that happened, Pam was visiting home um, because her mother was in an assisted living center for dementia, her mother George's wife, and. She first noticed that George started turning off Fox News when she was in the house, which she found found respectful. And they watched Family Feud together instead. And this is all in the midst of the 2016 political campaign. And then George just said to her, he said, Pam, I want you to know our relationship is more important to me than politics. So he just said, I'm going to take care of what we have together, even though we know we have these differences. And actually that allowed them to talk about their political differences in a totally different spirit rather than rolling their eyes at each other. They could be curious and Pam could say, why do you think this? And he could say the same thing to her. And while they were able now to talk about their political differences, they also could be continue to be in relationship while they were both facing the decline of this woman they both loved. And Pam's mother died in 2016, summer of 2016, and she told me that the relationship that she built with George is one of the proudest achievements of her life. Um, <laughs> and that says something, you know, it's not about winning yeah. a political debate. There's there's other bigger stuff uh, to tend to.
0: I, I have to admit that when I read about Pam and her stepfather, and especially the two things, um, she's proudest of being able to forge that relationship and his having said to her, uh, our relationship matters more than Fox News. It brought tears to my eyes because Mm -hmm. it's so powerful, so powerful when people choose to be together rather than to uh, maintain their kind of separate uh, silos um, in, in the world. We are out of time uh, for today's show, Anna Sale, and, I, and I'm frankly sorry we are. I could talk to you for another hour at least about this wonderful book. Let's talk about hard things, but I hope people will get a chance to read it themselves. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. Not only should people read your book, Anna, they should, if they don't, listen to your podcast. Uh, I, I looked it up a minute ago, the, the new podcast. Uh, uh, podcast is about a a former pro climber who is now dealing with a chronic, a devastating chronic illness. And that's there on your podcast site. Anna Sale, thank you for being with us today.
1: Oh, what a pleasure, Bill. Thank you so much.
0: We're out of time. Back again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy. Figure out if masks are important to you. I think in many cases they are. And if you're vaccinated, which I'm sure you are, tell a friend it's time they do the same thing. See you all tomorrow.